This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think it's safe to say that most people are pursuing happiness. We're entitled to that as Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And different people have different ways of going about this. We could take a look at some extreme examples. First, like hedonists, this would be the sex, drugs, and rock and roll crowd that Bill was a part of before Susan found him. The pleasure seekers, the thrill seekers, those who think that this is the means to a fulfilled life. We could talk about the ambitious, those who are seeking power, money, recognition, fame, people who are really concerned with leaving a legacy. They want to be remembered as the greatest artist of all time or the greatest musician, the greatest engineer or preacher. But in all reality, I think most people are much more down to earth than that. I think the average person on the street, they want to fall in love. They want to build a home, have a family. They want to find good work if they can get it. And maybe you're lucky enough to have a passion along with that, like fishing or golfing or scrapbooking or shopping. And that's the domesticated, homely happiness that I think most people are aiming at. But there's something else. Some very wise men a long time ago discovered that in order to have a life that's worth something, you have to develop virtue. You have to have character. And there were four cardinal virtues that they focused in on that they said were pivotal for human societies and civilizations and individuals. They said you need justice, which 
is fairness. You need prudence or common sense. You need fortitude. That's courage, guts. And you need temperance, knowing how far to go without going any further. And if we would cultivate these as a society, we would be able to build healthy environments where people can pursue a safe and secure and happy life. And I think there's a lot of merit to this philosophy. And by the way, we need to understand that character in the sense is not something that happens by accident. It's something that you have to consciously and deliberately cultivate, takes effort. And the reason I think that there is a good deal of stock in this idea is because the most miserable people I know are also the most undisciplined. Spoiled people are immensely unhappy. People whose lives are governed primarily by emotion and mood swings. People that do not have self-control. These are generally the people who are the most bored, the most frustrated, the most miserable. But this wisdom only goes so far. Up to this point, almost everything I have said this morning could be taught in a non-Christian context. Except for the quote from Matthew. I could go to universities and I could talk about the cardinal virtues. And I could talk about the importance of cultivating character. And I don't think it would really stir up any riots And in fact, there's probably a good number of people, even at liberal universities, that recognize, yes, we need to have societies that are built upon principles like justice. We need to have courage. We need to have temperance. People can perceive that you will fall apart if you do not have these in some degree. And I like a phrase that A.C. Thistleton, the Bible scholar, uses in his book, New Horizons and Hermeneutics, and it's Horizon of expectation. He likes to use that, and I enjoy it. And it basically just means that we as human beings bring to our experience certain expectations. We anticipate the way that things are going to be. And sometimes reality is in line with those expectations, and sometimes it subverts them or challenges them. And I want to tell you that when we come to the Galilean, the carpenter, and we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we are being exposed to a wisdom that is not of this world. And I love the way that Matthew sets this up. I find it appealing personally that Jesus is not speaking in the temple in Jerusalem. Or that he's not in some decorated auditorium giving a lecture. But he's out in the open countryside. And he looks out and he sees crowds of people beginning to gather around him. And so Matthew says that he goes up the mountain. And then he sits down. That's another little interesting detail that's easy to overlook. He sits down. And the disciples gather around him. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of 
heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think George MacDonald captured the essence of this very nicely in his book, Hope of the Gospel. I'm going to quote from page 56 and 57. The poor, the beggars in spirit, the humble men of heart, the unambitious, the unselfish, those who never despise men and never seek their praises, The lowly who see nothing to admire in themselves, therefore cannot seek to be admired of others. The men who give themselves away, these are the freemen of the kingdom. These are the citizens of the new Jerusalem. The men who are aware of their own essential poverty, not the men who are poor in friends, Poor in influence, poor in acquirements, poor in money, but those who are poor in spirit, who feel themselves poor creatures, who know nothing to be pleased with themselves for, and desire nothing to make them think well of themselves, who know that they need much to make their life worth living, to make their existence a good thing, to make them fit to live. These humble ones are the poor whom the Lord calls blessed. When a man says, I am low and worthless, then the gate of the kingdom begins to open to him. For there enter the true. And this man has begun to know the truth concerning himself. Now, this virtue is not exalted outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. This would not be accepted at a liberal university. This hits us right in the face. And there are many people even within the Christian church. That would probably disagree with the language that McDonald uses. They'd say that's taking it too far. That's too morbid. That's too masochistic. That's too self-degrading. But listen to what he says further down. About the poor in spirit. He would not choose to be less than his neighbor. He would choose his neighbor to be greater than he. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. And this teaching grates us because it threatens our favorite idol, the idol of self. And we don't want people to mess with that one. Don't tell me that that one is unworthy. Don't tell me that that one has no value In and of itself. And all of us in this room without exception. Have been guilty of bowing down to that idol. Every single one of us. For example. How often do you find yourself comparing yourself to other people? And by the way. I'm not just talking about people who are more attractive. Who are smarter. Who are better paid. I just mean people. Oftentimes we'll compare ourselves to the bottom of the barrel. And ask yourself the question. Why do you do that? Because it makes it easier to worship that idol, to polish it up, to make it look good. Ask yourself this, when you are the recipient of criticism, how do you react? Oftentimes, even if it's justified, we react with anger. We react with frustration. We don't like being criticized. Why? And I think the answer is clear. Because we are proud. Because we are conceited. Because we are not poor in spirit. 
I could even take it a step further and ask this question. If you believe that God loves you this morning, why do you believe he loves you? I think most Christians would answer that question like this. I believe that he loves me because he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins. And by the way, that is very true. But you'll notice that doesn't answer the question. The question was not how do you know that God loves you? The question is, why does God love you? Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this in The Four Loves, page 130. No sooner do we believe that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so, not because he is love, but because we are intrinsically lovable. The pagans obeyed this impulse unabashed. A good man was dear to the gods because he was good. We, being better taught, resort to deception. Far be it from us to think that we have virtues for which God could love us. But then, how magnificently have we repented? As Bunyan says, describing his first illusory conversion, I thought there was no man in England that pleased God better than I. Beaten out of this, we next offer our own humility to God's admiration. Surely he'll like that. Or if not that, our clear-sighted and humble recognition that we still lack humility. Thus, depth beneath depth and subtlety within subtlety, there remains some lingering idea of our own, our very own attractiveness. It is easy to acknowledge, but almost impossible to believe that we are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines on us. Do you believe that God loves you because God is love not because you merit it and by the way do you think that god loves you a little bit more than some people that's another indication that you have not yet understood the love of god and i love what c.s lewis says here he says it's easy to acknowledge this it's easy to preach it almost impossible to believe it Because in our own human experience, it doesn't work that way. And to be frank, we don't want to be loved for no reason. We want to be loved because we want to think that we're special. We want people to love us because they think we're special. We don't want a love that's just purely a gift that we have to accept in humility. That we have to say, I am unworthy. I am a wretch. I am a worm. I am a sinner. And so I accept the gift of God's love by grace. The poor in spirit believe in the love of God. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to move to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I'm going to rattle off several scriptures here. So if you want to anticipate me. I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 20. Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. The book of Psalms chapter 27, 7 through 9. And then the book of Isaiah 17, 7. 
beginning with the book of Exodus, chapter 33. And Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. Job chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has become thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Psalm 27, verses 7 through 9. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, do I seek. And then Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7. On that day, people will regard their maker and their eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, we hear the cry of the human heart. We want to see God. And Jesus says that there are a class of men who will behold the Father. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The eyes through which we behold him are not the eyes of the flesh, it's not the eyes of knowledge, but the eyes of a pure heart. And just as earlier I mentioned that people pursue happiness in various ways, people pursue purity in various ways. They emphasize different things. We can see this, for example, in the book of Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And just to set this up for you, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Jesus' disciples have just been criticized for not washing their hands before they eat. And we're getting into what are known as the kosher laws, the dietary laws of Judaism. Verse 14. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile? Since it enters not in the heart, but the stomach and goes out into the sewer Thus he declared all foods clean, and he said, It is what comes out of a person that defiles, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Now, I want you to listen to what N.T. Wright in his book, After You Believe, has to say about this passage, because it's very revealing. 
The point is clear to anyone familiar with first century Judaism. Jesus was treading hard on some very sensitive toes. Jewish freedom fighters had died, we are told, from within the folk traditions of the Maccabees and elsewhere, rather than eat unclean food. The food laws were a vital part of the living tradition which enabled the embattled Israel of Jesus' day to define itself over against the unclean pagan nations all around to retain its God-given identity as Daniel and his friends had done in the court of Babylon. How could Jesus now say that people become unclean not by eating particular foods, but by the things that bubble up from inside them? And it is clear when you read the Old Testament, you can open up the book of Leviticus chapter 11. There they are, the animals that are unclean. And so it's not surprising that the people of Israel would emphasize this as a means of purity. You don't eat unclean animals. But the problem is that had become their entire focus. Things like that. Things of that nature. And Jesus is completely subverting that worldview here. He's saying, no, it has nothing to do with what goes into your mouth. It has everything to do with what comes out of it. Now, I think that there's a parallel that can be drawn here in modern times. Because when we speak of purity, what are the main things that we emphasize? Well, you can't drink, you cannot smoke, you cannot watch pornography, you can't listen to rock and roll. These defile a person. And by the way, just so I won't seem to be advocating any of these things, I'm known in the youth for my diatribes against television. And I do think that we need to be mindful of what we're watching on the television, at the movie theater. I certainly think that it's appalling, the lyrics of some modern songs. I mean, the best way to describe them would just to be to call them outright satanic. That would be the best way to describe some of these lyrics. And these kids have no ideas that they're just pouring venom straight into their heads all day long. But here's the deal. You can not smoke, not drink, not watch pornography, not listen to modern music and still be impure because of the things that come out of your mouth. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15, 25, 29. I'm going to jump. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Verse 25, so then putting away all falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Verse 29, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. That's in one chapter in Ephesians. Paul continually coming back to the same point. Speak the truth. Put away falsehood. Let your language be used to build up. I quoted George MacDonald earlier, and one of his sayings that I very much admire is, if anyone thinks it's easy to be an honest man, that person has never tried it. All right, and it is so easy for us to be dishonest. We have a tendency to exaggerate. We have a tendency to color things according to our prejudices and our biases you know men in particular to pick on us we know everything 
I mean, if you look at any area of life, we have all the explanations. We know everything about psychology. We know everything about sociology. We know everything about quantum physics and politics and everything. Just ask us. We'll tell you. No, we haven't studied it. We just know. And look, there's nothing wrong with giving your humble, honest opinion. But when you present that as if it's immutable, irreversible, eternal truth, that's a different area altogether. I think with a lot of women, the temptation leans more towards gossip. And again, it's hard to draw the line sometimes. Yes, I think it's okay every once in a while to tell an embarrassing story about your friend. But how easily that just slides into backbiting and slander. When here we have the Apostle Paul telling us, let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only, but only what is useful for building up. But that's not even the whole of the problem. Listen to what William Law has to tell us in his book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, concerning our language, our words. He that believes that everything happens to him for the best cannot possibly complain for the lack of something better. If, therefore, you live in murmurings and complaints, accusing the accidents of life, it is not because you are a weak, infirm creature. But it is because you lack the first principle of religion, a right belief in God. For as thankfulness is an express acknowledgement of the goodness of God toward you, so repinings and complaints are as plain accusations of God's lack of goodness towards you. On the other hand, would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It is not he who prays most or fasts most. It is not he who gives most alms or is most eminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. But it is he who is always thankful to God, who wills everything that God wills, who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness, and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. God inhabits what? The praises of his people and we come up with excuses so easily it is so easy to put us in a bad mood sometimes it could be some physical ailment your joints ache your head aches you feel sick you went to work you had a bad day your car tire blew out you have students that you want to kill in my case and and we will say, we will say now, now this excuse justifies me in not being thankful to God. This, this justifies me in, in being selfish. This gives me license to do that. No, it does not. I mean, it just begs the question, are you only going to worship God when you feel good? Or are you going to worship God all the time? Are you only going to follow Jesus Christ when it feels good? Or are you going to follow Jesus Christ all of the time. And I've said this many times before. And I never get tired of saying it. Because I think sometimes we do have a tendency to overcomplicate Christianity. And I've heard people complain about going to services. And hearing messages about grace and atonement and salvation. And they say you know what I leave the building and I don't understand any of it. But listen. Christianity is not complicated. Now I'm not saying that it's easy. Don't think that I'm confusing the terms here. It's not complicated. It's doing 
what Jesus told us to do. Period. Jesus told us, love people the way that I loved you. That's Christianity. And people who want to say, well, that smacks of a works type salvation, saying that we have to love other people. And what I'd say to that is this. When you have made that your goal, when you have made it your goal, not just today, but when you wake up tomorrow, when you wake up Tuesday and you have made that your goal, you said, today, I'm going to deny myself. Today, I'm going to love other people the way that Jesus loves me. And when you have prayed to God and said, God, I pray that you would kill my idol of self. I pray that you would kill the old man. I pray that you would make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. When you have done that, then you will understand that salvation is a free gift and not until then. I am not really concerned with speaking doctrine and theology to people who are not interested in doing what Jesus has told them to do. Doctrine and theology are there to edify believers, but in the hands of the faithless, they become dangerous weapons. And I have seen that in people's lives. Christianity is not complicated. N.T. Wright, who I quoted earlier, he said that he had the privilege this past year to make a trip. And if you look at the book of Revelation, in the beginning of the book of the Revelation, the evangelist tells us about seven different churches that are there in that book. And N.T. Wright said that he had the privilege of visiting six of the places where those seven churches used to be. And this is what he said. You can go there now. And Christianity has all but disappeared. You can look at Western Europe. Christianity is disappearing. You can look at England. Christianity is disappearing. And you can look at America and we are going to follow that same pattern unless we start to take this a little bit more seriously. In other words, I didn't come here this morning to throw these out as suggestions. You're having trouble with your life? Are you sad this morning? Try this. What we're saying is the Messiah has come. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God. It is his desire that the kingdom of God be established on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, this is what the citizens of the kingdom of God look like. They are poor in spirit. They are mournful. They are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure. They are peacemakers. They are persecuted for righteousness sake. That is what you are signing up for. If you say, I want to be a member of that kingdom. I want to be a citizen in the new Jerusalem. And Jesus says, this life is eternally blessed. This is our vocation. This is what God has called us to be, a light to the world. Let's pray. Good Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship here this morning. 
and to search your scriptures. And we pray that you would grant us the gifts of humility and grant us the gifts of mercy, grant us the gifts of purity to make us poor in spirit, to make us believe in your great love that you have for us. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to follow you wholeheartedly all the days of our life. And mold us in the image of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.